Hello, and welcome to Joy Christian Community Church. Each week we strive to bring you Bible-based, Christ-centered teaching so that you will grow alive, deep, and bold in the love and knowledge of Jesus. And now here's Pastor Clayton with this week's message. It used to be very common for the family business to be handed down from one generation to, an, to the next, from the father to the son. And while that still happens yet today, it's not nearly as common as it was before. But there are some sons who still take up the father's business. It's because the father's business is their identity. It's who they are. It's in their blood. So today we have a fairly straightforward account in many ways from Luke. But it, the importance of this account is about the identity of the son and the work that the son will do in the father's business. So at the core, the message is one of identity. And if, again, if you want, we have sermon notes for you. If you want to follow along, if you need, there are pens on the uh, welcome table. Before we get into the actual text, I have to give you just a little bit of a warning here. The warning is this. There are a lot of false gospels, a lot of false stories about Jesus and his youth. So, for example, there is the infancy gospel of Thomas, which is different than the gospel of Thomas, but both are heresy, by the way. And in that particular infancy gospel, Jesus, the story is he takes some clay and makes some birds and then they fly. You might have seen this in a movie recently came out. Uh, another one, also in the so-called infancy gospel, Jesus has collected water. So he's, he's a kid, right? And he, he's made a pool, a, a, little, a little earthen dam there. And the water's collecting in this. And another kid knocks it apart and the water goes out. So Jesus causes his body to wither into a corpse. In a separate story, there's a child who bumps into him and Jesus curses him and the child dies. The parents and the neighbors complain to Mary and Joseph and then Jesus therefore makes them blind. Does this sound like Jesus? It doesn't, does it? See, when you get into, when you take away, when you do something apart from scripture, you get into either wild speculation or heresy. Here's what we know from his birth to age 12. It is one verse, and it comes right before our reading. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's what we know. Everything else becomes speculation and heresy. So let's get to the text. I'm going to black that out for a moment. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. So we see here that Mary and Joseph were devout. They were religious. They would go up for the feasts. In the Old Testament, there were three feasts that were required of the men to go to Jerusalem. It was the Passover, and that was the one they went to. It was also Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. So they went up 
to the Feast of Passover. They stayed the entire time. And Luke also brings up the point that Jesus was 12 years old. The importance of this is that at that point, young boys, young men, that was now the age of accountability. It has become what is known as the bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. Bar means son. So so, uh, Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Bar, son, and mitzvah is the commandment. So I want you to just kind of put a bookmark, put a finger kind of on this part being 12 years old or son of the commandment. And we're going to get back to that later on. But this was part of the Jewish identity of who he became. So reaching the age of bar mitzvah signified that he was a full-fledged member of the Jewish community and all of the responsibilities that came with that identity. So in the eyes now of the community, he was considered a man. This day you have become a man. And you had the moral responsibilities that went with being son of the commandments. You were to follow the Torah. You also had the opportunity to read the Torah during the, in the synagogue. So when Luke points out that Jesus is 12 years old, he's saying at this point, he's becoming spiritually mature. He has been given the wisdom and the favor of God to understand who he is and the mission he is on and the work he is to do, the work for which God the Father sent him. So that's what we get in just those two little verses there. So what was it actually like then? So Jerusalem at Passover, it says, verse 43, and when the feast was ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his his parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Okay, so Jerusalem, during the Feast of Passover, remember, it was required to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. So the city would balloon. You could get minimum, minimum 100,000 people, 250,000 people or more. And it was packed. You had all the merchants lining the streets with all the stalls. You would have beggars throughout the area. And the, the sacrificing of lambs, you, somebody said there could be up to a, a half a million sacrifices during that time. So it was a busy, busy, packed place. Now imagine, you go with all your relatives. It's a big group. It'd be pretty easy to get separated, right? Have you ever gone to a mall? right? A big mall. And you go there with a group of friends and it's so big that you got to park way out. And I don't know if you have it here. They, they have like have animal signs there. Like we're, we're going to meet at the camel. Anybody have that? Maybe that's a Minnesota, Minnesota folks. Come on. So you, we're going to, okay, everybody get your watches going. We're going to meet back here as a group at the Camelot sign, and then we're going to be going along our way. And you separate, and you just kind of trust that if people separate, they're going to eventually get back to the right place. They went a day's journey. 
about 20, 25 miles. Big group. They started to look for him afterwards. Couldn't find him. So they had to travel back. That's another day. And then they took another day, or at least part of a day, looking for him. That's the three days that they're talking about here. So they come back. Now, my question for you is, if your child, your 12-year-old, wasn't with you, and they were in a particular town or city or, you know, even where you grow up, where would you look for them? I mean, you'd go to their friend's house, you'd go to the neighbors, you go to every... Would you ever go to the church? It's like, oh, well, of course, they're, he or she's, they're at the church talking with the pastor. Yeah, no, it doesn't, <laughs> none of that, right? You'd be like, at the church? But this is where Jesus was. He was at the temple. So after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In our lives, we talk about child prodigies. You know, child prodigies are generally good at math, science, language, sometimes the arts, things like that. As a matter of fact, there's a child prodigy. Uh, he's grown now, a man, but his name is Kim Ung Young. He was born in 1963 in Korea. He began speaking at four or five months, depending on the account. Yeah, when you're that young, what's give or take a month, right? He was fluent. You, he could converse at six months. And he was able to uh, read Japanese, Korean, German, and English by his second birthday. At the age of four, he solved a calculus problem on Japanese television. He's still alive today. Even in early childhood, he began to write poetry and was an amazing painter. That's a child prodigy, right? I think by age three, I was still eating dirt or something like that. <laughs> so here's the thing, though. We get a lot of examples of child prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi's like, yeah, he probably was. Um, but we get story after story of child prodigies who excel in all these areas. But when did you hear of a child prodigy in theology? You don't hear that, do you? And see, that's what Jesus was doing. He was filled with God's grace, his insight, his wisdom, his favor. And he was sitting there at the temple. And remember, Passover, everybody would come. So you would get these rabbis and these very learned men, teachers. And they would sit at the temple. And what was common in the day is they would ask stimulating questions of the people to get them thinking. What was Jesus doing? He was not only giving answers, he was asking questions that I'm sure stumped the rabbis, made them pause and think, who is this young boy? This is what he was doing. See, already as a child, Jesus was able to engage the best religious minds in this way. And why is that? Because he was unique. He was one of a kind and is one of a kind. There never will be anyone like Jesus, the wisdom of God. 
Now look, this has been foretold by the prophets. We can go back through the Old Testament. We did that a little bit in Advent about the prophecies of Jesus coming. It was announced, Gabriel announced that, didn't he? To Joseph and to Mary and even Zechariah. He, he announced that. And then Elizabeth exclaims, Mary sings her song. And Simeon in the temple, at the temple gates, gives the prophecy of who Jesus is. All of this pointing to the identity of who Jesus is. The Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. Now Mary and Joseph knew that, didn't they? But at the same time, they reacted as human parents. And they, it says this, verse 48, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I mean, they, they were hurt. They were hurt. Your father and I have been searching for you translates literally suffering pain. We are searching for you. But hadn't they stopped for a moment and recalled everything what Gabriel said, what Simeon said, what was pronounced by the prophets, they would have realized that Jesus was exactly where he was supposed to be. And so he says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Why were you looking for me? See, this question isn't rebuke at all. It's not an argument. It's actually fairly gentle. It's almost like curiosity. It's almost as if he's saying, didn't you know I'd be here? Don't you understand who I am? It's similar, uh, though maybe a little less pointed than Jesus' reply to Philip uh, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Do you see there that, that similar vein? Do you, not, do you not know who I am? It's clear from Jesus' question and his response that even at the age of 12, he was conscious of the unique relationship between him and the Father. And his identity is a heavenly identity. He knew exactly where he was supposed to be. And he says this, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now that one phrase has a lot to it. Three parts to it. I must. Must means compulsion, an obligation to do something. But it's more, I mean, I have a compulsion to breathe, right? But is it just compulsion? No, it is a necessity. It is a necessity that I must breathe. Jesus says, it is a necessity that I must be in my father's house. Let me give you an example. How many of you have seen chariots of fire? Few? We might have to show that one. That's a good movie. Good movie. It's based on a true story. Eric Liddell, uh, Little, I think, uh, 1924 Olympics. Strong Christian man, fast runner. Uh, I like what it says in the movie. It says, I believe that God made me for a purpose. This is Eric speaking. But he also made me fast. And when I run, 
I feel his pleasure. It wasn't just a compulsion to run. There was a necessity of running. I mean, his, his, by the way, how he ran was very ungainly. He actually threw his head back when he would run. And I mean, that, that's actually him from the 1924 Olympics, Paris Olympics. He would throw back his head. His gait wasn't perfect, but man, he was fast. And oh, you can just see him feeling the pleasure of God in his running. He said, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I re- run, I feel his pleasure. That's the necessity. That's the must. See, for us to be in Christ should be a compulsion, but a necessity of being with him, of running the race with Christ. I mean, do do, do you have that compulsion? Is it a necessity or is it just a nice to have? It should, I mean, when it's that must, you are filled and you actually do feel the pleasure of God. For Jesus being in the presence of the Father, the union of the Father was a must. It was a necessity. It was something that was essential to him. The word must was often on the lips of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, he said, I must preach the good news and the kingdom of God to those in other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke chapter 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He must, that is a necessity. And in John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, he's talking to Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus' life was a life of must. It was a life of necessity. And even at the age of 12, he knew that he must be doing the will of the Father. Now let's go on to the next part. My father's house. When he said, my father, regarding the temple, my father's house, this was a claim like no other claim that people would dare to make. In the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, the word father regarding God, God as father, is used only 14 times. 14 times entirety of the, old, of the Old Testament. And it's always used as the father of nations. Now, God was called the father of Abraham, but Abraham never, never called God my father. But when we get to Jesus and the New Testament, he always refers to God as his father. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, record him using the Father more than 60 times in reference to God. You see, earlier on, I said, put a bookmark, right? Remember? Son of the commandment? Son of the law? 
But this is far different than Jesus is talking about. He is saying that he is the son of God. The son of God. This is far and above anything else that could be used regarding Jesus. Look, all of the gospel writers referred to him as the son of God. Mark 1, 1. So the beginning of Mark, which by the way, this is the account from Peter to Mark. So this is Peter. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. John 1, 34. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the son of God. His disciples and followers recognized him as the son of God. Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Martha at the tomb of Lazarus said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Paul, before he was Saul, he went in the synagogue before he became known as Paul went to the synagogue and proclaimed Jesus by saying he is the son of God. The demons and even Satan recognized him as the son of God. Matthew 8, 29. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, you have to understand how important this is. This isn't just a little thing in passing. Like what John MacArthur states. States. He says, now this then became the single most important claim that Jesus makes. To say that you are the savior is one thing. To say that you are the king of something is something else. To say that you are a deliverer is something. Those are important, but to say that you are son of God is above all of that. Every time the son of God is applied in scripture to Christ It always refers to his essential deity, his absolute eternal equality with God. He is a member of the Trinity who has existed before all time. To say he is the son of God is not simply a human title. It is a divine title. This all comes from saying, my father's house. Now, to say my father's house, one of the reasons I have my father's business on there is because even though the text clearly indicates that they're talking about where are you, Jesus, and he's at the temple, and so the, you could actually just find to say my father's house, but if we just have it be a location, I think we miss some of the essence of it. Because in the original language, it says this, to be in or about the things of my father. The King James Version uses my father's business. But I like that, to be in or about the things of my father. See, Jesus, as a 12-year-old, knew the necessity of being with the father, of doing the will of the father even from that time. Now, let's be clear. When we say this, Jesus didn't become God. He's always been God. Truly God, truly man. But as a youth, his capacity to understand his divine 
nature had to mature. And so he increased in wisdom and knowledge in the human capacity regarding his divine nature. Does that make sense? (laughs) Now, if anybody fully understands that, let me know. We'll talk afterwards. But Jesus said that he has to do the work of the Father, right? It's that must. Remember those musts that I talked about? He must preach the good news. He must be crucified, died, and rise again. He must be lifted up so that everybody who believes in him will have eternal life. That's what he knew, 12 years old. So in a very succinct fashion, in Luke's story, we see the identity of Christ. A lot of people will say, a lot of people will tell you, oh, well, that's just made up. That Jesus, by the time he was 30, people, they made him into be a God. And Luke is saying, no, I'm going to give you one story here that shows the identity of who he is already. The father sent the son, right? That's the father sent the son. The son is to proclaim the good news and all who believe in him have eternal life. This is the business of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit. So the question I have for you this morning, will you two take up the family business? Will you two take up the family business? To take up the family business is to be engaged in it. To be so compelled by who Christ is in the gospel message. And not not that it's just a nice to have sort of thing, but to be compelled by it so that you want to share with others. To do the work of the apostles. What did the apostles do? They pointed to Jesus. It's in their blood. And it's the blood of Christ. Will you too take up that family business? That's the question. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. God's peace and joy in Christ Jesus be with you.